0: What a glorious day, man, to, to just be up here and to hear you guys worshiping, and uh, and now we get to do something real glorious, and that is to have Bible study, amen? So with that being said, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Again, we're still following the life and the ministry of our Lord, days away from Him uh, going to uh, the, the into uh, the... Um, uh, the high priest's um, inner chambers there for a bogus trial, and then brought before Pontius Pilate, and and of course eventually being led to Calvary to die for our sins. Man, uh, we are in Matthew twenty one, and I'm kind of trying. I know we 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 got as far as uh, the first parable there. You know what, I'm going to pick it up at that first parable again, uh, verse 28. There's three parables that are given in chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22. And the parables were given um, to answer the question um, that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had asked Jesus, by what right or what authority do you do these things, in reference to him going into the temple, overturning the tables and the money changers and, and throwing them out. And again, you know, by what, what authority do you do those things? And so Jesus asks them a question and he says, well, if you can tell me this, who's uh, John the Baptist? Was the, his ministry from God or was it from man? And they had a holy huddle. And they said, man, we can't answer that question. If we say it was from God, then why didn't you listen to him? So we can't say that. But if we say of men, well, everybody loved John. Then they'll trample us. So let's just go with this, we don't know. And so they went back to Jesus and said, well, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then I'm not going to tell you, you know, by what authority. But he does. And the way he answers them is through the next three parables. So I'm going to read through the parables with you guys. Uh, skip over some verses, but we will cover it during our Bible study, but starting with verse 28, first parable, a certain man had two sons, and the first came, uh, and he came to the first, and he said, "Son, go um, work today in my vineyard." He answered and he said, "I will not, but afterward he repented and he went, and then he came to his second. And said likewise. And he answered the second son, and said, I'll go, sir, but went not. Now, whether of them, the twain, the two of them, did the Father's will? Well, they said unto him the first. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. The publicans and the harlots believed him. And you, when ye had seen it, you repented not afterward that you might believe him. Now our second parable. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it around about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and lent it or rent it out to a husbandman went into a far country and when the time of the fruit drew near he sent his servants to the husbandman and they that uh, that they might receive the fruit of it the husbandman took his servants and beat one killed the other stoned the other again he sent another servant more than the first and they did unto them likewise Well, the the last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize his inheritance. They They caught him, and they cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. And when the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, What will he do unto those husbandmen? Now, we'll answer that in a second. But let's go down to our third parable, which is in chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Jesus answered and he spake unto them again by a parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. He sent forth his servant to call them that were bidden, that were invited, to the wedding. And they would not come. Again he sent forth another servant. uh, Saying tell them which are bid. And behold I have prepared my dinner. My oxen. My fatlings are killed. And all things are ready. Come. You can hear him bidding them. Inviting them to the marriage. But they made light of it. And went their way. One to his farm. Another to his merchandise. The remnant took his servants. Entreated them spitefully, and slew them. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, he was angry, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden, were, were invited, were, uh, were not worthy. Now go therefore into the highway, and as many as you shall find, bid to the wedding." So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as were found, both bad and good. The wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on the wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. and There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's stand with Bible in hand, and let's pray together. Father God, again, we thank you for this time to study your word. And we know the, the importance of it all too, Lord. How one um, father is shapened, um, molded as it were, more and more into your image, which I believe is your desire. And we study your word to sharpen the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we know that through your word, Lord, people experience, well, your sons and daughters, they experience deliverance and authority and power. Lord, so much can be said, so much could be prayed over when it comes to your word, but I want to thank you, Lord, that you have placed in our hearts to be a Berean, to study it. Lord, so I pray, Father, that you would enlighten it, and Lord, that you would just um, anoint our minds and our hearts to receive those things from your spirit. Whatever your will is, we pray that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, Father, for your anointing upon your word, we pray in Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen and amen. Thanks, guys. Again, it seems like there's a lot to cover here, and uh, (laughs) there is. And so, um, I don't want to go too long with um, the intro, though... It's going to be um, very far and few between where you don't hear me do an intro because I really think that the context of whatever we're um, studying um, is so important. It has to be established to make sure that we have um, proper interpretation of our text and we just don't misrepresent God. Again, I'll say this until I finally go home to be with the Lord. God has never given us permission to take him out of context or to misrepresent him. But here we are in this chapter. We know Jesus had, again, a few days away from going to Calvary. He makes his way, as predicted, by the way, by the prophets... To enter into Jerusalem on a specific day where palm branches are going to be thrown down, coats are going to be thrown down, songs are going to be sung. The first group that are are singing this Hosanna song, which is mentioned in Psalms 118, uh, was mostly done by the adults the more mature ones. And again, in their minds, in their hearts, they're thinking, here he finally, he's finally coming. He's going to be our king. A little strange that he's coming in on a donkey, but he is finally going to remove the Roman yoke, the Roman tyranny. He's finally going to return the scepter of Judah back into the Jewish hand and finally give us Israel back. Well, they, they, they misread it. Remember, he says, if you had only known that this was your hour... They didn't study Daniel, apparently. But I don't want to go too far that way. Let's stay on track here. He goes in... um and and I love what I love about this chapter too by the way he's challenging the religious leaders the scribes and the Pharisees Sadducees about knowing the word of God he says in three different places here in this in this chapter verse 13 says it is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer we see him challenging them again in verse 16 have you never read and again he challenges them in verse 42 did you never read the scriptures, and again, all in light, all in reference to uh, prophetic messages in the Old Testament. And they would have to turn around if they were answered and say, no, or we would have known that out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And they would have said, wait a minute, the second time that we hear this Hosanna, kids are singing it, and they would say, hey, man, this is something that we've seen in Psalms. Uh, 118 oh this is something we saw in Psalms 8 oh this is something we've seen in uh, Isaiah chapter 56 oh this is something some of the cross-reference that we covered last week so he goes in there and he deals with this thing from verses 13 down to verse um, verse 17 he's pointing them to the temple He's overthrown the money changers, tab- our seats and the tables and animals are running all over the place. And uh, he says, you know, haven't you ever read that, our house, that my house should be a house of prayer? And there was four things that I pointed out to you last week about what God wanted for his house there on the temple mount. And the message to you and I is what our house should look like. I mean our church, our ecclesia, right here in the body of Christ, what it should say. And I pointed out four things that I saw Jesus alluding to in that chapter. Number one, it should be a place where prayer is offered. And that's something that's really heavy on my heart lately is to get the church back to this thing. Let's start praying collectively. Let's start praying individually. Let's start praying for our church. Let's start praying for our nation. And God knows that the nation needs prayer right now. Amen, guys? Anybody been watching the news lately? Oh, my goodness. Things are really heating, heating up. Amen, guys? So we really need to start praying uh, Praying fervently for our church. So a prayer should be offered. People should be helped. It was the lame. It was the blind who came to the temple. And we see Jesus actually um, helping them there. So again, our fellowship should be a place where we're offering help. No, I well, you know, if God wants to heal the blind and the lame, I'm okay with that, right? Or, or anyone. Uh, but the message, and spiritually speaking, many will come into this place of worship, and they are going to be blind, spiritually blind. And there are going to be a lot who come in that are lame and unable to walk spiritually. And this church should be a place where people are being helped in those areas. And then not only is it to be a place where people are being helped, but where power is also released. I want to believe, guys, as your pastor, I want to believe that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Listen, if he's able to heal the blind eye, if he's able to cause the lame to walk, if he's able to cause a man with a withered hand to stretch forth all those ligaments again, can he not still do that today? You know, and I really want to believe with all my heart that those that are entrapped with addiction can be set free. Those that are, their marriages are disintegrating, that God can reach down and heal that marriage. I got to believe that because then why am I here? Why are you here? Is it just to have a Bible study? No, I don't think so. I think it's a place where God can demonstrate his power and his authority among his people. And then number four, and fourthly, I think it has to be where, where praise is being um, expressed. Where we're just worshiping. And I gave you four Hebrew words last yesterday. But the one that I really want to just focus on as we go into this stuff. Pardon me, this study is the word halal, which it means there's a deep down satisfaction because of all God has done for us and it just releases praise and and worship. And so that's what I see for the body of Christ. That's what Jesus or God saw for his temple mount there. And then, um, again, just to briefly mention, he leaves the temple. He never spends one night, by the way, on the Temple Mount the last week of his ministry. He always goes back to Bethany. And I personally believe it's because that's where Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived. And he was just kicking back in the evening with them. And he's just enjoying their fellowship and being encouraged himself. But he goes back, and, as he 's coming back out of Bethany back to the Temple Mount for ministry, he comes across that crazy fig tree that he thought was would be fruit on it doesn 't uh, find any fruit on the tree. The tree is cursed, and it withers from the roots on up, and just we covered that when we were in Mark chapter eleven. But then we come into this whole thing where the Pharisees come in verses 23 to 24, I believe it is, and he, they just come right out and says, "Who gives you this authority to do something like this?" you know, what, what credentials do you have, you know, uh, what degrees do you possess, you know, what what gives you the right to do something like this, and and again, I just love how he, well, let, let me ask you something, buddy, you know, John's ministry, and I've already given you that, and um, so they couldn't answer, and he he answers them with these three parables, now these three parables, I really believe what you could see in these parables, and by the way, more a lesson for us, may possibly than for them, is that we're going to see in the first parable the Father. And then we're going to see in the second parable the Son being alluded to. And in the third parable we're going to see the Holy Spirit. So we can say on the onset that what who what gives Jesus the, 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 the authority and the power to do this is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anyway, that might just be my lame brainness ness uh, that I saw there. It's just something I want to point out to you as I go through this. Um, but anyway, let's go to, to the parable there. He says, okay, there's a certain man. He's got two sons. Now, again, I covered this briefly last week in closing. But, of course, the certain man and the man would be the father. Uh, and he had two sons. And then again, he says the two sons. Well, he goes to the one and he says, hey, uh, by the way, I got some work for you to do. And at first, the first son says, no, I don't want to do that. He's just probably a normal, a normal young, young son. Oh, come on, Pop Sunday afternoon or, you know, can't I sleep in or whatever? And then he starts to think about it. And I love that part. Most likely he's alone and he's pondering the request from the father. And and I and I see my and myself in a lot of You know, the Lord laying something on my heart. And you know, at first, you know, I went, "No, I'm not." Oh, really, Lord, today it's Monday, you know. Well. And I went, "Oh, Lord, forgive me." I got. It. And so there might be a little bit of rebellion, but but then there's repentance. And then the second son is asked the same thing, "Hey, hey, son, would you go and work in my vineyard?" Now he, he gives a bunch of lip service, but he never goes. He's got all the right things to say. But in his heart, there's a lot of rebellion. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go. And so what, he, what Jesus is saying here, and he kind of points it out there. He said, verily, I'm saying to you, to you and this must have been a, like a dagger in, in their hearts to the religious leaders there, that, that the publicans, the tax collectors, those that are despised, and the harlots, those that you, know, you didn't even talk about, um, they're going to go into the kingdom of heaven before you guys. Now, why? Because, well, maybe at first they were listening to John's message about baptism unto repentance. Maybe they kicked a little bit and maybe rebelled somewhat. But later on, they thought about it, pondered the thought, you know what? The, this crazy guy that's in the Jordan River telling me that I need to be identified with we, Well, he's right. I am a publican. That's who I truly am. And I am a harlot. And maybe, and so they would weigh down later on and say, listen, John the B, you're right, and he would back. Well, they enter into the kingdom, this fear in what God is doing, before the public. Why? Because the publicans and the Pharisees would stand on the embankment of the Jordan River and give, oh yeah, it's a good thing that he's doing. Oh yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. Listen to what he has said. But in their hearts of hearts, they never repented. And that's what I, you know, even today I see a danger of people. You know who follow a religious system and there's a lot of lip service, but they refuse to really look down into their hearts they refuse to acknowledge that there is none isaiah chapter sixty five that all our righteousness says plural um, are it's like a filthy rag there's not one paul in, in Rome in Romans there's not one good, no not one. And so you and I might have been witnessed to and given tracks to, and we might yell and scream at first, you know, oh, that's a bunch of baloney. And then all of a sudden, maybe in the quietness of your room, your house, or wherever you are, you're going, you know what? What this guy said about me is right. I shared a little story last week about a gal who kind of kicked and screamed at the message, and then, for, and, then, and then later on came back and received Christ there as our Lord and Savior. So the, he goes into then to the second where he says he here, and then here 's another parable there 's a certain householder now he 's the owner which planted a vineyard. Now they would understand this parable because of Isaiah chapter five. You might take a time later on to look at that, but as soon as as soon as he, Jesus mentioned vineyard they 're thinking oh that 's one of our national um, emblems the the vineyard." And uh, sure, so they probably went, oh, let's listen to this a little. So they planted a vineyard. He hedged it in. Um, and I'm going to give you what these things mean in, in a second. But he hedged it in around a bound, digged a wine press in it, and then he builds a tower and he, he rents it out to a husband. The husbandman would be like a, a farmer or a vine dresser. And so you have, again, you have this guy. He's a, a landowner and he wants to go away. So he says, instead of just letting my land lie, lie dormant, let me rent it out to a, a farmer and then the tower. What's the tower? Well, the tower was always connected to wall, the wall. So a tower kind of represents um, uh, that which would protect. It would protect the vineyard. And so it could allude to God's protection. The wine press would represent the fruit that would come from the grapes. Uh, the hedge about it would represent the law of Moses. Uh, that, that would kind of protect it as well, to keep the foxes and such out. So again, he goes away to a far country, and when the time harvest time drew near, he sends his servants uh, uh, to the husbandman. So this is the house owner. He sends his servants, collect my rent. Well, it says there in verse 35, that the husbandman took the servants, and, and the servants would represent the prophets of God. And so these servants t- uh, t- take, the, I'm sorry, so these husband took the servants and uh, beat one, killed another, stoned another. And so when you do study the Old Testament, especially in the area of the prophets, you kind of think, well, those prophets did have it pretty, pretty hard. I mean, you think of Isaiah, he was sawn in half. You think of the hardship uh, that uh, Elijah went through. You think of the, uh, the, Jeremiah, who spent a life of obscurity with no fruit at all in his ministry. So the prophets really had and a lot of them were killed because of their messages. And so you can see that he's pointing to... God being the, the the landowner, the vineyard being Israel, the the hedge around it being the law of Moses, the tower being the fr- I'm sorry, the wine press being the fruit, the tower and the hedge being the protection, uh, God's protection, and then the prophets coming, the ser- warning, warning them, and saying, you know, God wants fruit from you, and they wouldn't give God the fruit. And again, just remember that what Jesus is doing, he's answering their question of who gave you the authority. And in this one, we just see a beautiful picture of, again, again, God, and then the servants, the parable. But look at verse 37. Here's where we see the son. But he says, but last of all, he sent them his son. And that's exactly what God did. He sent his son. They will reverence my son, but when the husbandmen saw the son, when the vine dressers, the um, the religious leaders saw the son, they said among themselves, "It it's the heir. Come, let's kill him and let's seize on his inheritance." So they caught him and they cast him out of the vineyard and uh, they slew him. What a picture of the cross! They did not crucify him. In the area of the Temple Mount, but outside of the walls on a mount called Golgotha, Calvary, uh, the place of the skull, and that's exactly where they slew him. And again, who sent the Son? The Father sent the Son. Who gives the authority to Jesus to tear, you know, to overthrow the money? The Father, the Son. He goes on and he says, when the landlord there of, um, of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Well, without thinking, they said, he, he'll miserably destroy those wicked men. And then rent, it, rent his vineyard out to another husbandman, another vine dresser, and shall render him the fruits of their season. And then Jesus said, well, did you ever read the scriptures uh, the stone, which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. it's marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, he said unto you... Unto, uh, therefore, I say I unto you... The kingdom of God will be taken away from you... And given to a people... What people? The prostitutes... The, the publicans... Uh, the Gentiles... It will be taken from you... And given to them... Uh, bringing forth the fruits... Whosoever shall fall on this stone... Shall be broken... But whomsoever it shall fall... It will grind him to powder... All right... That's a lot to handle... I agree. Let me simplify it for you for, such a, for just a second. Here, what they were doing by rejecting Jesus' authority from the Father and from the Son, what they're doing is they're rejecting the cornerstone. What cornerstone? Now, a lot of scholars say when, he, when Jesus said, have you never read? It wasn't in light of the scripture. Now, I don't totally buy that. It might be true, maybe they're registering, well, yeah, there was this rumor once when we were building this grand temple that they brought in the cornerstone last, and it didn't fit in, so they just rejected it all together and threw it over an embankment. They rejected the cornerstone, and then the problems they had correcting the temple because they threw away the cornerstone, it's another historical read if you'd like to dig it up. But that's not what he's referring to. When he said, have you not, haven't you read that stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? There, you know, they should have read that. Why? Because he had already alluded to, haven't you read that out of the mouths of babes and sucklings God has perfected praise? Well, yeah, her well, that was mentioned in Psalms 118. 18. Right above those verses about the babes and suckling is this very verse. They should have read it. So they, instead of rejecting God's authority upon the one who just toppled over the furnishings, rejecting the son that was promised to come, they're also rejecting God's plan. Well, what do you mean, Herr? Listen, what is a cornerstone? Now, a lot of you builders in here, you understand right away about a cornerstone. Now, we don't use them today, but back in, you know, the ancient days, nothing was built without a cornerstone. Why? Because that's where you got your true lines from. You would set down a cornerstone and you would make one straight line and then another straight line. That's how you would square that piece of, that building off. Without it, you would go in all kinds of direction. They rejected the chief cornerstone. No wonder those poor scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, they were all over the map. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know how to point people. But you see, if they had received the cornerstone and sat it in place, they would have understood that Jesus had the authority. Because he was the Son. And that the father did send his son. And that temple, everything in that temple pointed to the son. And, and again, they, they, they rejected it. And um, he said, therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you. Just like the first parable. Now what do you mean by the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them? Well the kingdom of God, whenever we use this phrase... It means everything that, that, that where God is working, the sphere in which God is doing, and right that at that moment, that sphere of what God was doing, was Jesus was presenting Himself as the Lamb of God, and that was being taken away from them, and yet there was babes, sucklings crying out Hosanna. There were prostitutes that were getting it. There were publicans who were getting it. There were people that were living in the street, the blind, the lame, those that that, that were more unfortunate, the leper. They began to get it. But for them, it was being taken away. They would remain in their blindness. What does it mean, though, in verse 44, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken let me ask you just one question and you could just respond by a, a raise of hand or whatever. How many of you guys right now are born again by the Spirit of God in your lives? That happened to you. There was a moment in your life where, where Jesus revealed Himself and he, 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 he convicted you about your sin, your depravity and you understood unless I humble myself and come to the cross of Calvary, And bow my knee. And allow him to break me. Before the cross. I'm not going to be saved. And you allowed him. To break you. You fell upon the stone. And were broken. Now the other other part of that verse. Where it says. Whoever it shall fall. It will grind him to powder. Those who were not able to raise their hands. This morning. Will eventually. The stone will fall upon you. In judgment. And he will say in the next parable where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what he was saying, this cornerstone that we build our lives off of points us in the true directions, you know. And he shows us things and he reveals scriptures to us because because we fell upon him and we were broken before him and humbled. Do you know how, listen, please listen to me. And I still pray that I'll grow in this. Do you know how important or how important humility is in your life, and how dangerous pride is? Man, pride will wipe me off the map, the spiritual map in a heartbeat. And that's something we have to really protect our hearts over, and we have to continually, constantly fall upon him. And allow him to break us and mold us. Whenever I want my way. Whenever I start trying to reason it out in my own mind. And I get, and allow my flesh to get involved. And I become prideful. Oh man. I just need to fall back upon the rock. And allow him to make me more and more like him. Does that make sense church? Alright well then it goes on. Right? And by the way, I find it also interesting before we go into the the next parable, is that what we find in the scriptures, listen to this. In Romans 9, the stone will be a stumbling block. I pray that Jesus isn't a stumbling block to you. But to the Jews, he became a stumbling block. They couldn't understand how Gentiles could be saved and enjoy the kingdom of God. They stumbled over it. In Daniel chapter 9, he would become, or pardon me, Um uh, Daniel chapter 2, he would become a, a smiting stone. You know, it's another study, and we're doing that on Wednesday night, but the, the stone that was ca- carved out without hands comes, coming, coming, and he smites the Gentile nations, the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. I'm probably really confusing you now, but come out on Wednesday, I'll explain it to you. But in Ephesians, to you and I, in Ephesians chapter 2, oh, let me read it to you. It's worthy of it. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. It says, and are built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, meaning we're built upon the Old Testament and New Testament. There are people, you know, really trying to get away from the Old Testament. Please don't do that. Include the old with the new and the new with the old. Amen? Amen. He says, Jesus Christ himself being what? The chief cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together grows into the holy temple of the Lord. In whom um, you are also built together for an habitation of God through his spirit. By the holy spirit of God. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, Scythians, barbarian, whatever you are. We are framed together by the spirit of God. And built on a cornerstone. And he being who? Jesus, he's our chief going. Let me tell you a real quick story, man. My first trip, second trip to India years ago, I had hair. I saw a picture. I had hair. You know, so that tells you how long ago it was. And I remember, I think it was somewhere in the area of Delhi, and there was a lot of persecution going on with the Christian church. And uh, so one night around 10 o'clock, I hear this little, and these little Indian brothers are so gentle, and um, and they, and I hear this tiny, so I'm thinking, man, what is that, a rat, you know? And I get up, I open the door, and here are these two little brown Indian brothers, and they're just going, brother, brother, come with me, you know, like this. And I'm going, oh, come on, man, it's like 10, 11 at night, I want to get to bed. No, no, come, come on. And as I go out, I see these th- car lights go on, and they're taking me to a car, and they get me in the back seat. And I'm thinking, I don't know, this is kind of weird, you know. And so they drive me and my buddy, I had a partner with me, and he drove drive us to this field. And they handed us these crazy bricks. So we walk out, and all of a sudden, there's like 50 car lights come on. And I went, okay, I hope this isn't a stoning. And uh, <laughs> so we take us over, there's this little square hole. And he, 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 he tells Motions, they couldn't speak English, but to put my brick in the hole. And I put my brick, then my buddy, and then another little Indian brother came out, put a brick. And we made this square little stack of bricks. And one with tears coming out. it, he goes, this is a cornerstone for our new church. Well, there I am. <laughs> you know. Here, I'm thinking they're going to stone me. And um now, it was symbolic, of course. They did. In fact, the church still exists now as the pastor there is Pastor Daniel. And, uh, and the church is thriving and growing. But it was just a, a kind of a, a ceremony that, that he, he wanted me to know that they were building their church upon the true cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Well, we do that in Calvary, South Jersey. He is our church chief cornerstone. But we are together a temple. You know, wherever two or three are are gathered. And he will be, again, our chief cornerstone. When the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard this parable, they perceived, they understood that he spake of them. (laughs) Man, this guy's talking about us. But when they had sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him as a prophet. Oh, then Jesus spoke. He spake unto them again by parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. Now, because of time's sake, I'm going to not go through the whole parable and then go back interpret it. I'm going to interpret as we go through it. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. Well, that would be God. God the Father, Right? He had a certain king, and he, he he's having a marriage for his son. Well, that, of course, the son would be Jesus Christ. What about the marriage Har? Well, the marriage would represent it would represent the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'll read this to you in Revelation chapter nineteen, verse nine. He said, "Write, blessed are they that are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb." He said unto me, "These are a true saying; these are the true sayings of God." There's a marriage coming, gang, and I, can't, I don't have the time to give you a, a perfect timeline of the events. That's going to, but one day, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we that are alive and remain, we will be metamorphosed, changed, raptured, harpazoed, taken off the face of the earth to enter into a new dispensation called the seven years of tribulation for the earth. But for you and I, it'll be a dispensation of the greatest marriage reception you've ever a- attended, man. We're going into the marriage supper of the Lamb, according to the Revelations 19. So he sends forth his servants now, I've read a few commentaries, but I, I, I again, because I'm thinking the Father, I see him in the first one. I see the Son in the second one. And I think I see the Spirit in this third one. Well, it says here, he sent forth his, his servants. Well, the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is a servant to God and the Son. The Spirit was sent to reveal the Son, not to reveal himself. But, hey, there's a problem there. What's the problem? Yeah, well, the problem is it's plural, servants. Well, I got an answer for that. See, we're told in Isaiah and also in the book of Revelation, and it talks about the seven workings or the seven folds of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that there's seven Holy Spirits. What it does mean is there's seven things that the Holy Spirit specifically does. There's a sort of almost like an attributes that he does, seven. But there's just one Holy Spirit. And by the way, Trinitarian, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Amen, guys? Trinitarian. Oh, will you explain it? Not the side of eternity. When we get to heaven, we'll understand the Trinity. But right now, the Bible is perfectly clear that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all three, but yet in one. Boy, that almost sounded like a rhyme, but be that as it may, you know, so we'll study it again in some other time, but to fully understand it will be in the eternal. Well, he calls he, he wants to have this wedding, so he sends his servants, in verse 3, calls them that are bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Who are being invited? Well, remember, Jesus came to the, to the Jews first. He came to the religious community first. He, he, and, and they refused him. They didn't want to come. So he says, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll, I'll invite him again. Behold, I've prepared my dinner. Oxen and my fatlings are killed. Notice there's a lot of meat here, by the way, vegetarians. I'm just saying. And all things are ready. Come to the marriage. I'm there. Hey, listen, if you're telling me you got some lamb chops, man, and you got ribs, and you got whatever. I'm there. But look what, look, look, look. Oh, but they just made light of it. It's not that important. Do you know how important eternity is? I'm glad you believe that, you know. Well, no, it's, the Bible says, you know, and it, people just blow it off. They make light of it. No, there's some who don't. they right in your face, you know, and they, it's real heavy to them. But maybe they're the ones that say, I won't, but later repent. Maybe the ones that are making light of it are with just the lip service. You know, oh, yeah, all right, all right. Take your Bible and you can just go, you know. But they made light of it and went their way. One to his farm, the other to his stuff. They just went back to their stuff. Their stuff was more important than this glorious invite. You know, so again, the remnant took his servants and then treated them spitefully and slew them. That's how they handled them. Almost just like the other parable there in chapter 21. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He sent forth his armies. He destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. He said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways. And as many as you shall find, invite them to the wedding. You know who I see in there, by the way? You and I. You know, maybe, you know, may, may, maybe God, he invited, he invites everyone, by the way. But when he went into the highways and the byways where the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the blind and the lame, the drug addict, and those who've made a mess out of their lives, they hear this invitation and they respond. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as, as uh, oh, as many... As they could find both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Well, what is that all about? Well, let me have your eyes a minute. You know, you know, for if you were wealthy, and 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 by the way, these weddings went on for seven days, right? How 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 long is our got seven years, right? But anyway, uh, you could know, get all crazy with these numbers. But be that as it may, listen, he, he goes in and he's looking around and there's, and he, he sees someone that doesn't have the garment. Now, where do these garments come from? Well, you see, back in ancient days, if you were wealthy enough, and this guy, was, it's a royal wedding, so he would, you would arrive at the door and, uh, and then you would be given a wedding garment to wear. Now the funny thing about this is what historians and people say, uh, they're all the same. It's all the same, and usually they were all white. So if you arrived, you would have a, have a white gown. You would everyone. So as this king is coming through, very easy to find somebody else that's not dressed in all white. You know, wait a minute. <laughs> Who's that guy who's wearing the, the gold and red and he's flashy and get that guy, you know? And, and the only ones that would, listen, this is the great thing about this. The only one that would be dressed different than you would be the bride and groom. Well, why? Because the father wants all the attention on the bride and groom and not everyone else. That's why they would do it. Hey, listen, when we get to ours, it's about you and it's about the groom. The bride and groom, and you will stand out. But he, he gets, and the response he said, "How did you get in here?" And not having the wedding garment, no, he has no answer. He's speechless because there is no answer to give. What is he going to say? I, I snuck over a wall. Jesus alluded to that, by the way, in his teaching. Only a thief and a robber goes over the wall. So he was speechless. And so uh, he said to the king, I'm sorry, and then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now remember, this is a parable. It's an earthly story. They're well familiar with the story. They under, just like the other one when it was talking about the vineyard, Isaiah 5. They understood about this parable with a king, a royal wedding, everybody else being dressed. This uninvited guest sneaks in somehow. He's caught, doesn't know how to defend himself. And again, spiritual truth here. As they bound him and threw him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know it's not an easy subject, is it? It isn't. But it's 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 worthy to to have some knowledge of it. Everyone should be able to point to a scripture, this one or others, and say, I'm I'm sorry, my friend, but um if you don't receive Christ, then the only other thing that could happen to you is you'll be cast into outer darkness. That that horrifies me. In and of itself. But then to add where there's weeping and gnashing, meaning there is torment, where there's, where there's an eternity filled with knowledge that you rejected him. And he says, All you have to do is respond to my invite. All you have to do is say yes to the invitation, but you would not. See, gang, what really helps with verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. You know, right away people will hear that voice, you know, there he goes, there's Harry's on that Arminianist and Calvinist kick, you know, predestination and all that. Listen, I didn't write this book. But I'll I'll be the first to tell you, when it comes to those two different theology that completely opposes each other. I don't have an answer for those that want to argue that. Other than what I see here. That there were many that were invited. See, this shines light on Romans. Turn to Romans real quick just to close this out. Romans 8. Unless... and it's a, it's a verse that we love quoting but i think a lot of times we don't totally understand this whole thing with art by the way arminianism in a nutshell is human response calvinism is um um election that god has chosen certain things to happen and you have no say over it so in other words He knows he's picked so many to be saved and he's picked so many to go to hell. And I know that's pretty harsh, but that's it in a nutshell. See, and I I think both are true. And and I'll explain it in a second. But it says in verse 29 in uh, Romans 8, For whom he did foreknow. Now just stop there for a second. Who did he foreknow? He knew the ones he had invited. He knew. He said first, go invite. See, God has foreknowledge. No one would argue that. Or he wouldn't be God. He knows. You can't even say he knows the beginning. Because the beginning is a, a a point of reference. And God has no point of reference. He has always been. So he knows who would respond to the invite. He knows who's not going to respond. He knew the The day, the moment, the hour, a second or a nanosecond that you were going to finally say, I'm going to fall upon the rock so he doesn't fall upon me. He knew that hour. He knew the hour that you would be baptized in his spirit. He knew the hour where he would call you into the work of the ministry. He knows everything about you. He is all-knowing. Omniscient is the fancy word. He's all-knowing. So, of course, he knew. And, and that's why he throws out whosoever will. You know, uh, John 3.16 believes shall not perish. That's why he would say uh, in Revelation, the spirit and the bride says, come. come who? Everyone. The spirit and the bride says, just, just come. Everybody's invited. He goes on He said, Jesus said, come unto me. You that are weary and laden and, and you need rest, just come to me. See, the invite's to everyone. But Jesus, but God, because of his foreknowledge, he, he knows who's going to respond and who won't. Paul the Apostle said this about the nature of God. It's his will that none would ever perish, but that all would come. But see, God, because of his foreknowledge, he knows who will come, who will not come, who will reject, even though he don't want them to reject. So in a sense, Calvin's right that God has foreknowledge, and, but where he's wrong, he still leaves human response up to you and me to say yes or no to the invite. But once you say yes to the invite, that's where the rest of uh, Romans 8.29 kicks in, whom he did predestined to be conformed into the image Son. Who's being predestined to be conformed? The ones who responded to the invite. As soon as I said yes, September of 1973, he says, Okay, now I'm going to conform you into the image of my son. I'm going to work in you. You are my handiwork, already preordained before the foundation of the earth to work, walk in them. And then after that, he has conformed this to his son. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called. There's the invite. He called. Whom he called, he also justified. What's justification mean? Richard, you can make your way out. Justification mean. Justification means just as if I had never sinned. Well, how did that happen? Well, God made the, the put out the invite for anyone who wants to come. He knows in his foreknowledge that you would respond. He begins to put the calling upon your life. You are now being transformed and conformed into his image. And, now, and then, now you're justified. Just as if you never committed one sin. Just as if you never. By faith. And then it says. And then he will also glorify. Which we will really experience. The, uh, the glorification. When we're finally ushered into the marriage supper of the lamb. But notice verse 31. For what shall we say to these things? If God is for us. Then who can be against us? Man, I hope I wasn't confusing this morning. But that's why in, in Romans 8, 28, where he says, All things work out for the good to them that love him are called according to him. Well, yeah, well, why is that so? Well, it tells us why God, whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. And he can't get any better than that. Why well, we're sitting around the marriage supper of the young lamb, because Why? Because you responded to his call. There's just two challenges I want to leave with you today. If you've never fallen upon the stone and humbled yourself, <laughs> then he will fall upon you. And you just got to ask yourself. You've been invited. God is a just God. If he didn't invite you, then he's not just. Amen. So he has, to ju- he has to call the whole world to Repentance respond to it this morning and and again if you're dealing with pride you just want your own way let him humble you seven things that the lord hates and yeah uh, I'm sorry six or seven things six things the lord hates yeah the seventh is an abomination one of the things he hates he despises it's an abomination is pride he doesn't like it folks humble yourself in the sight of the lord that's what the bible says let's stand together that's a lot to chew on, right? And that definitely wasn't dessert. There's a lot to chew on there. Who gave Jesus the authority? The Father did. The Son did. The Holy Spirit did. And the Spirit says, come. Come. Whosoever will. You know, as Richard leads us out in the song, man, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior that's falling on him just in the quietness of your heart just say Lord Jesus forgive me man I now fall upon you humble me I trust you save me come into my heart and he's not a respecter of persons look around man if he saved a the lot the... <laughs> wow he'll save you too